Welcome to episode 241 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Mike Andrade, CEO of Canadian company Morgan Solar, is one of the most astute observers of the energy tr transition that I've come across. I interviewed him for episode 152 of the podcast. It's titled Energy as a Technology versus Energy as a Commodity. It changed uh, in some ways the way I think about the energy transition. So give it a listen over the holidays if you have time. Today, I'm going to talk to Mike about his career in clean energy technology. So welcome to the interview, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Markham. Always a pleasure to talk. And that was kind words, I guess, earned over the years of making many mistakes in this industry, <laughs> I guess, for my philosophy. <laughs> well, this is, you know, I don't often do this kind of interview where I, it's more of a, a personal journey interview. Uh, and, you know, usually there's a topic and I'm, I, I'm interviewing an expert about that topic. But you've had a varied career in electronics manufacturing, and that's given you some insights into this energy transition uh, that not many have. And I want to explore how you got there. And uh, hmm. so let's just, let's have the, the Mike story. Uh, start at the beginning, wherever you think that makes sense. Okay, well, I mean, I, I was... Uh engineering and so i was always in in technology and, and technology in the, the early to mid 80s meant computers and so i started off at ibm and uh because i i wanted to be in in technology and it the the actually interesting lesson i ended up getting from ibm is that what seems to be an unassailable strength from the outside you realize oh this is a, a risk from the inside and what that was with IBM, even though it was this dominant, most admired company at the time, is that the PC revolution, partially, which it created with the IBM PC, was eating up its main business of mainframes and storage and, and those sort of things um, at a rapid pace. And um, by the time it got to the, to the uh, probably late 80s, it was, you know, they were burning the furniture to keep warm, selling off places and businesses and, and things like that. And uh, what, you know, the company I, I I went to work for was really not the company that it ended up being. And the pace of that was rapid. And so that was the first kind of like, uh, you know, awakening that, that that all is not necessarily what you think from the outside. And that, um, you know, if I, if I can interject for just a minute, uh, Mike, I, I want to yeah. ask a question. The, um, I'm very interested in the disruption of incumbent business models because we're seeing that in, in with this energy transition. And, and it seems yeah. to me that, that the, the irony here, of course, is that IBM created the disruption or the innovation yeah. that then disrupted its own business model. Uh, but the irony yeah. aside, um, IBM then, because it's now thriving again, IBM seems to be one of the an incumbent that was disrupted re-engineered its business model to become, if not as successful, at least successful. Yeah, it's a, it's probably a shadow of itself when you look at terms of its, uh, probably its position, number of people and profitability and all that. But absolutely, the fact that it's just survived has been um, amazing. Most companies are not able to um, make that sort of transition and survive. They usually get bought or or they collapse. So you know, IBM has been one of the rare exceptions that actually has has done that to their credit. Um, and 
and as you're, you're right, they didn't invent the, the PC, but what they did was make it uh, an acceptable form of computers for large companies to use rather than some hobby kit sort of thing that enthusiasts did, right? So that's the thing that their brand always was. You don't get fired by, uh, you know, if you buy IBM, if you're the, you know, the CTO or CIO of a large company, that was the, the deal, right? And And so they just took that brand and said, hey, but the PCs can be also, you know, industry grade, if you will. And the next thing they knew, uh, they're getting eaten up. And, and so the, so here's, here's what the, the lesson I learned from that, because that's the salient lesson is that um, the, we, we would make the most complex hardware, even in the, in the IBM plant I worked for, with things like 90 years of mean time between failure, as an example. Uh, supporting the mainframes. And the thing that destroyed that product, which was a Swiss watch gem of technology, was not some other one who said, hey, I've come up with something that's 90, 90 years plus one uh, reliability with some other Swiss watch. It was just someone who said, look, you know, those PCs, they have hard disks on them. And if we just have them all in array that connected with software where there's failover redundancy in case one fails, the data is on the other one, uh, that's going to be a more reliable and better and cheaper way to do things. And so that was the sort of thing that happened is that the the innovation of distributed, smaller, cheaper things done at scale with failover uh, was the thing that ended up destroying the mainframe and uh, their storage business from below. And so, you know, they did set that in motion, uh, but then couldn't deal with the forces that it released. And it took a lot of time and a lot of divestitures for them to right the ship. Um, so they had to throw a lot of stuff overboard in order to do that. And, and Celestica uh, was one of those things is that they were going to close the IBM Toronto plight that plant. But the management of that said, Hey, I think we've got something valuable. Um, and we convinced IBM to allow us to go and shop it around and, and Onyx uh, bought us and kind of the rest was history. So, oh, but my, hang on a second. Let me let me interrupt yeah. again. Yeah. Not everybody knows Celestica's history, and in fact, that would include me. So, can you give us a brief overview of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the Celestica was formed out of the IBM Toronto plant, which was an electronics manufacturing plant uh, in in the corner of Don Mills and Eglinton, and um, it had a unique mission in that most. Most uh, U.S. IBM plants would have a manufacturing plant across from a, a development lab, and the development lab would develop products, and and then the factory across the parking lot would build them. But because we we're in Canada, we didn't have anything like that. We had a software lab across, and so we always had to sing for our supper and go and find other businesses within IBM. Um, and so we got exposure to a whole bunch of things, which is what gave us the confidence that, you know, hey, we've been able to be successful and compete for business with dealing with global plants around the world and labs around the world and been competitive and have experience with very high quality manufacturing. We think as electronics enters more and more things now that that sort of skill set will be valuable beyond the computer industry. And that was a premise that, uh, that Celestica was formed. And so, um, you know, Onyx, which, you know, a large Canadian private equity company bought us and then we, uh, through a series of acquisitions and uh, 
and organic growth in during the dot com bubble in in particular in the mid to late 90s uh, the company became a 10 billion dollar company valued at 18 billion dollars and you know from just a small thing on the corner of um you know, Don Mills and Eglinton um, bought for something like five or six hundred million dollars. Uh, so yeah, it was tremendous. It was a Canadian tech success story, and it still exists. But it, once again, it's smaller than it was. Um, but it's a miracle that's survived in many ways too. Okay, so you started out at IBM, and then once, and then at the end of the '80s, you moved over to Celestica, and you were there for most yeah. of of the '90s. And what happened after that? Yeah, so I I was um, so I was the first salesperson that that Celestic had. I was part of the founding management team, and my entire premise was having learned from what happened to IBM that I would go and uh, not me alone, but I would go and find other industries with, that we said, "Hey, look what's coming towards you: uh, simple commoditized software and uh, electronics, largely in the form of semiconductors." Um, on circuit boards, where it's going to become the driving factor in your industry. And as soon as electronics entered your industry, whether you're a car or a plane or a medical piece of equipment, you are going to find that your business didn't operate like a auto business or an aerospace business or a you know medical business or an industrial products business. It was going to start, or a telecom business for that matter. It was going to start operating like a teleco like a technology business. The pace of innovation, the source of innovation, uh, was going to look more like a technology business with economies of scale, uh, from commodity parts, with R and D being simpler because you're just reassembling existing componentry, um, and with relentlessly reducing costs, both because of that uh, economies of scale, but also because of Moore's law. And we would say, look what happened to us. And we know this personally. And so we would just roll, we ran the table. So anyone who had some sort of high reliability application, um, <clears throat> but saw the electronics wave coming, uh, we were able to, to um, you know, get them to, instead of manufacturing themselves, outsource the manufacturing. And that started off with telecom, but it marched all the way to aerospace, industrial, semiconductor equipment and all that. And that was my career. That was essentially it from probably the founding of Celestica um, until when I left in, in 2015. I, I was just finding the next frontier of uh, things that were going to move away from mechanical to an electronics model and showing people that we knew the roadmap. You know, we'd seen this movie before. Here's what you do to be competitive. Um, so and that's what led me. If I yeah, can go ahead. So um, the the lesson here for energy is that energy has been a commodity. And this was the yes. the, the uh, topic of our conversation during our, our previous interview. And while the production of energy uh, has been become increasingly technology oriented and many of the things that you the trends you're talking about around electronics have found their way into uh the production of those commodities, the essential nature of the energy has not changed. A drop of oil mm -hmm. is still a drop of oil and a, and a you know, megajoule of, of gas is still gas. And, yeah. and this is the first time that energy, and maybe I'm wrong here because I'm now, of course, I'm thinking of hydro generation of electricity, but, let, but let's run with this. This is the first time where 
the fundamental nature of energy has changed. Oh yeah, I mean, and that's what we identified. As I said, that this trend is coming to um, electricity generation uh, and ultimately distribution. And the entry points, there's always an entry point. Uh, the entry point was solar, uh, solar inverters, power electronics, and to a lesser extent, battery storage. It wasn't a big thing back in, I would say, you know, late 2000s. Um, but that's when we uh, got into it. And that's when I, you know, I kind of started up a group that said, hey, we've been successful in all these other marketplaces. We think that there is an opportunity here because this is also about high reliability, right? They, they have very high uptime requirements, long duration contracts, like 25, 30 years. Um, and we said solar and inverters and batteries and power electronics can do all those things. And so this is going to be the entry point into, um, into the energy system. And, and that's what, that's where we jumped into it, probably about 2000 and late, late 2000s or so we got into it based on the premise exactly of seeing this movie before and just saying it's now going to happen to the electricity generation distribution. So does Morgan Solar grow out of Celestica? No, no. Uh, the Interesting enough, Morgan Solar, uh, when we announced that we were getting, when I was at Celestica, when we announced we're going to get into solar, uh, Morgan, we, we did a scan of the technologies and uh, just to decide where we wanted to enter. And interesting enough, like I was, um, the team was telling me back in 2009 that I was the signatory on the non-disclosure agreement uh, of Morgan sharing their technology with IBM. Uh, and, well, Celestica and IBM, but Celestica, we were fully on, fully on our own by then. And, uh, and so I, we passed on it at that time uh, because it was trying to do something that I didn't think was going to be successful, i.e. create a better mousetrap sort of solar rather than just kind of riding the industry standard sort of um, manufacturing commodity approach that I'd seen work so well and reference, you know, the PC versus the mainframe. They're trying to do the mainframe model, I think. And make a better um, mainframe. Correct. And I was saying the model's going to be PCs here. Um, so we were very successful. Let me answer your question, though, about, because yes, of course, I, I did feel exactly what you said is that there is every time I sold, whether it was a telecom and aerospace automotive, there was always some older folks, uh, you know, I guess I become one of these, but who would say, you don't understand our industry. You know, there's a reason why you can't do X, what we were saying, right? Um, and that usually came to some belief that uh, there was some difference here and or there was some higher quality requirement or whatever. And I got just used to hearing it and then saying, okay, tell me what that is. And then we would prove to them that we could do it and we could do it at a much lower cost. Um, and it could be as reliable, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, those people usually left the business, you know, <laughs> and then we moved on to the next one. And it's the same thing that happened here is that um, the people who think energy generally think, uh, a couple of things, uh, or electricity, let's say. It's usually some sort of molecule, be it a natural gas or, or water flowing through something or coal or, or whatever. But then is just the source that's spinning some mechanical thing, like a big turbine, right? And then that generates the heat and steam to then create electricity or, or whatever it happens to be, whether it be a nuclear coal or whatever. It starts off, it's just an 
it's a mechanical engineering thing of which I'm a mechanical engineer. I love it. These, these things are the Swiss watches of, of the energy business turbines and things like that. Um, and so, you know, they, they couldn't get their head out past the idea that the energy is about is indistinguishable from the source of that energy. You know, the thing that's creating the heat that then you turn the massive turbine by. Right. And, and the difference, of course, when you're dealing with a kind of a solid state system, there's no big turning shaft of of anything. So there's there's a whole different um, reliability, cost point, efficiency that comes from not having this big mechanical thing turning. You have a whole lot of uh, improved conversion efficiency because you don't have all these thermal losses and things like that. And the second thing is, and the final thing is that now you have separated out the source of, of energy. It's completely separate uh, now from the molecules. It's usually a ray of sun or a gust of wind or what have you. And then it turns into electrons. Um, and so they didn't, that, that's a fun, two fundamental changes is that all of the things that they think about is that, that it's, it's, and energy is a molecule problem. When you go to the electronics model, it's a conversion problem. It's how do you turn that gust of wind or that um, ray of, of the sun into electrons? But um, isn't but isn't and, wind essentially the the same kind of problem? Because what you're doing, yeah. you're still turning, you're still turning gears and and yeah. what have you. Uh, you're just your 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 yes. force. It now comes from wind instead of water. Correct. And, and that's, that's the, the, but the difference is you're, you are saying, okay, I've separated from a molecule, I guess it is <laughs> molecules in the air, but you have separated the, the source from uh, the energy piece, but you haven't done anything else about the conversion. You still have a big mechanical thing. So I never bet that wind was going to be the, the one that was going to drive the bus. And we did power inverters for wind, but we stayed away from the mechanical aspects of, it. we just thought that's not something that we could do anything about. You weren't interested um, in the turbines. No, no, we weren't. Uh, didn't think that was our gig. It was a mechanical play. Um, so we just focused on making the power electronics that went into the wind turbines, the solid state stuff, once it got past the rotating shaft. Because um, we figured that was common across almost all of the the uh, technology, solar and, and uh, wind. So... But solar was the thing we really focused on because it absolutely matched. You could use a semiconductor supply chain. It's like a wafer. It's a semiconductor wafer. It's just, you know, a PV wafer instead of a silicon wafer for processing. And there's, instead of maybe micro etching, you have different etching things to get the solar cells, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the general equipment set, um, material set, processing, those sort of things, you know, existed on huge scale at low cost. Uh, and in fact, the, the interesting thing about the, the wafers is that it could use down level semiconductor uh, manufacturing capabilities. So once the semiconductor guys had wrung out all of the, the bugs and defects and all that, and we're on to the next thing of, you know, next nano level of, of uh, feature size they could do, the solar industry just kind of took advantage of that and and could you know use existing tool sets. I'm not saying completely existing, but the technologies to to, to build the tool sets and um, lamination capabilities existed. There wasn't really anything magical for it, and um, and so that's that's where we entered into. We said we understand all of these things. We understand how to to um, buy 
capital equipment put into lines, run lines, you know, deal with the supply chains associated with that, uh, you know, underwrite reliability of electronics things. And so we started, we set up, um, you know, a variety of different solar plants at, at different points in the world um, to, to take advantage of our knowledge. Where were some of those plants located? Yeah, and, and it, this is where, you know, the, the interesting thing was, because even if you, you know, even if we knew we were right, like that this is where it was going to go, where I'm going to say, where it surprised, it surprised even, even me multiple times, who, who I felt had, I was on the other side of the table for all the people saying, yeah, you don't understand, it can't be done. And I was the one saying it could be done. I never anticipated just how fast it could, the cost curves can come down. The things with solar has come down faster than, you know, even seasoned guys like me could, could believe. And so the first one we did actually goes back to in Spain, when Spain had a very attractive feed-in tariff regime uh, and BP Solar um, was trying to get in in the very first time when they were <laughs> trying to say, hey, we're something else than solar, uh, so then, than oil, they got in and, and uh, they were setting up a plant in Spain and we convinced them, look, you guys don't really know electronics manufacturing, you know, you're an oil company and uh, so how about we do the manufacturing for you? And so we, we did that in, in Spain and that was kind of like taking their factory that they were going to set up and running it for them better because we understood it. And, you know, that was my, you know, first run into the oil companies, uh, you know, realizing yeah, you guys have absolutely zero competence in this, but not only that, this is a hobby for you. Right. And of course, as soon as Spain's, um, feed-in tariff was so successful that, that Spain got flooded by solar and, and, and shut down their tariffs, you know, BP, you know, got out of that business. They, they sold, they got out of the making solar panels at that. So that was my, the first iteration of, of that. Uh, and also my first experience with dealing with these oil and gas companies who are, you know, pretending they're saying they're going to do something different. Well, let's talk um, about that for that for a minute, because yeah. uh, I mean, you have some you have some practical experience with uh, with BP uh, in this space, but I'm I'm there's a lot of discussion going on as to what role oil and gas companies should play in the in the energy in the current energy transition, and you know you have people like uh, Fatty Barrel the. the executive director yeah. of the International Energy Agency saying that, you know, oil and gas companies have to get on on board. But I'm starting to see some some people I respect, like Javier uh, Blay at uh, Bloomberg saying, no, no, they're just not going to happen. They don't you can't ask a, a company that's structured the way oil and gas companies are with the 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 knowledge and the uh, you you can't ask them to re-engineer their business model. It will never happen. You're better. And the the inference of that from that is that you may as well just let them uh, ride the decline curve down into failure and then move on and and grow other businesses that are better suited to the types of uh, of energy that you're going to be creating. Yeah. So so Markham, I mean, this is an area where, unfortunately, I probably have amongst the most experience of, not, not anyone, but because I've been involved in this, uh, this industry where I was always riding up uh, to an industry and tell them, hey, change is coming. I would used to jokingly say, here's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, commoditization, electronics, introduction of software and hardware. <laughs> I'd say, hey, this is coming to your, your, your business. And it's going to wreak havoc on all that you know. 
and always seeing how the incumbents responded to that. And it was always resisting it um, and how they never, never led the, the transition. They, they, they hung on by the, and some of them like IBM or, you know, some of the other ones, they, they held on for a while. Um, but most like Nortel destroyed Alcatel, Nokia, Siemens, uh, you know, Lucent, at and all these guys, they've only survived as rumps of themselves with by mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that, nothing like what they did. So I have not yet seen uh, an incumbent uh, deal with a transition, even in the same industry with generally the same premises. And so this is, as, as we said, is a change from molecules to electrons it's a change from mechanical and and geological skill sets um into electronic supply chain you know that sort of thing capital equipment it's a change from large centralized massive projects that are all kind of bespoke you know i'm doing oil sands here or i'm doing offshore here to something that's like just add money large factories of the same equipment just rinse and repeat and run to you know, with Kaizen process and all this to just run out the efficiencies. Those are completely different businesses. Um, and so I, the, I haven't seen anyone even with a fraction of that sort of change survive. So there's no way that I feel that an oil and gas company can, can make that change. And secondly, I feel that they have absolutely zero core competence overlap between what it takes to compete in a solid state technology driven energy system versus what they're doing. I, I see neither of those things exist, but I'll tell you the final piece is, and, and sometimes people will tell me, well, but they have lots of money. Okay, great. But I have also seen this from the inside, um, and both at IBM and Celestic and all that is if you have a very profitable line of business, it also represents like 99 or percent of your business. Just the math says that you can just almost never make that 1%, even if it grows to two, even if it grows to three, like, so it's tripling and doubling its business. It's just rounding error for the company. And because all of the executives in that company are paid on share price as a whole or being successful or telling the market they're doing X on a quarterly basis or all that, it's never going to get the same attention as the you know, that, that 1%, 2%, 3%, 10% uh, thing. And Lord help you, if there ever is a reversal, as there always is when you're trying to start up something new, that's where things get killed and they just bring retrench back to the mothership and, and go. And that's what happened with BP. Um, I just want to it, jump in here again, Mike. Uh, the, 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 the argument that oil and gas companies have a lot of money is really misplaced because yeah. the... Because oil and gas is already being disrupted, um, uh, investors are demanding a premium uh, from the companies. Yeah. And so what you're seeing, and, and I know this to be the case in, in the big Canadian companies, I don't know outside of Canada, but in Canada, companies like Suncor and Synovus and, and uh, Canadian uh, Natural, uh, they are being asked to return 75% of their free cash flow back to investors. And then when they allocate capital to things like emissions reduction and a little bit to environmental liabilities, they don't have any more free cash flow. 
Yeah. So they uh, really don't. They uh, on paper they look like they they're they're cash rich and they could invest in all of these clean energy industries, but in reality they don't. Oh, for sure, our market. And that is, I mean, that's the evidence that's right under our nose that the same thing is happening. And you know, as I say, I don't have a lot of good things to say about the oil and gas companies as their role in climate change or their role in the transition, but I have a heck of a lot of like good to say about how they are managing their capital at this time, because with all the hue and cry from what I call as the useful idiots in our, you know, fossil fuel government industrial complex, trying to tell us that, you know, oil and gas should be doing X and they're going to do whatever it's, it's silence. When you look at the spending, the balance sheet and where their cash um, allocation is going, it's going exactly as you said, and it's going exactly to logically what a company does who realize that they have a cash cow that they are going to farm uh, and they are just going to maintain operations and, and that's they're almost doing textbook stuff. The only difference is there's so much noise from, as I said, their, the page shills and the whatever, that trying to make it look like that, that the deafening silence of the, the balance sheet spending and shifting from the oil companies is where you have to look. Look at what they're actually doing, not what they're saying. So right. I believe that they know that they have no role to play. Right. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Acting. Now let's let's get back to let's get back to the electronics and and yeah. uh, and, and uh, uh, energy as a technology. So here you are. Uh, Celestica is. Uh, so where do we pick up the the, the, yeah. the story from where we left off? Well, here's the next thing that. Uh, <laughs> So learning the lessons from uh, what happened in Spain and all that, the government started talking in Ontario about doing the, the Ontario feed-in tariff program, but it was part of the green energy and economic economy. Right, around, around 2008, 2009. Yeah, exactly. And the key part of that was the Economy Act, and everyone forgets that. Um, and we were part of helping them to form what ended up being the domestic content port portion because um, we said, look, um, solar, wind, they're going to be the future. Um, we've got to diversify. It, it, it's the right thing as they're shutting down the coal plants to replace them with wind and solar. Oh, by the way, nuclear had indebted, uh, you know, Ontario Hydro so much that they couldn't go back to the market or to the populace and ask for more tax money or whatever to fund more nuclear. So this was the only way they could do the transition. Everyone forgets that, of course, right? And then they said, and we're going to do that by creating an industry which will create a lasting legacy uh, of the future in Ontario because we have a good manufacturing base that has been ravaged by, you know, uh, free trade deals and things moving to Mexico and all that. So it actually was very good industrial policy. And... Um, so when they announced that, uh, and you had to have X amount of domestic um, content, uh, Celestica was the largest solar panel manufacturing uh, company, might have been North America, but it certainly was in Canada, and also was the largest um, inverter and power electronics manufacturer in Canada and, and likely Amer North America at the time, on the back of all the contracts that came into um you know, Ontario under the feed-in tariff uh, thing. It was an attractive rate to make them come and do that. The problem was that the government didn't adjust as solar prices started coming down. 
and they could have. And the second thing is, you know, we told them, look, there should be more money for the manufacturing than there should be for the projects, because all you're going to do is get a bunch of carpetbaggers coming in with money, and money's fungible, right? It can come from anywhere and go anywhere, whereas a factory and the jobs associated with can't. Um, but that's not what ended up happening. And we, of course, we did end up getting the carpetbaggers. And as a result, we had too, too much uh, money made by foreign companies that didn't really stay in uh, Ontario, and we, which led to expensive power prices. And we couldn't keep the jobs. And because this is the final irony, the, um, the Europeans, as part of the Canadian-European trade um, agreement, uh, were fighting the Ontario domestic content as well as um, our dairy marketing boards and the government caved and uh, kept the dairy marketing boards but got rid of the Ontario content and that was you know, at the beginning of the end of the industry in, in Ontario. So does that, now I'm thinking here of uh, a geothermal company based out of Calgary called Ever Technologies, closed yep. geothermal. It's over in yep. Germany right now because they've got a feed-in tariff of 250 euros per megawatt hour of electricity, and 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 uh, and ever can't compete in Alberta where they have a wholesale market, can't compete mm -hmm. with with uh, renewables or or even natural gas yet. So it seems like that the feed-in tariff should do what what it did in Germany, which is stimulate innov innovation to bring down the costs and you've essentially your feed-in tariff is just is industrial policy as you say and you just you pay that's the premium you pay to build your domestic industry yep and and of course that is what happened with solar in the early days with germans feed-in tariff program that they had um they created a whole bunch of um equipment manufacturing competences because go back to what their competency was high precision manufacturing equipment and automation and things like that. And a lot of the initial, even to this day, um, solar manufacturing equipment is German or German or German company origin. Um, and that allowed the um, scaling up of the manufacturing uh, factories. Um, and as the IP moved into the equipment from the people, that also allowed you to, to have broader markets and go to Asia and all that sort of stuff, all the stuff that engages in the electronic supply chain all the time, that enabled that to happen for solar. So Germany's feed-in tariff not only did that, jump-started it in Germany, but it ended up jump-starting solar in the world, frankly, for that. So that was probably one of the more successful industrial policies of all time, although the Germans didn't benefit from all of it. But the so, world well, certainly had it. So explain how China fits into this story. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the, this now becomes the rest of the story for for um, for my experience with with um, you know solar is that when the tariffs, uh, the Green Energy and Employment Act, um, and the domestic content was uh, you know stopped, then it was we were in a fully competitive model. Um, and we are competing, of course, with global uh, manufacturing. And what was interesting is that when we were shipping products into Ontario solar plants, we were selling panels at a dollar US per watt. Um, and within, I don't know, two years or so like that, it was 60 cents 
uh, a lot. And so I know the drill because I had in all these other industries, uh, you know, Western European and North American manufacturing couldn't compete as that intelligence went on to the capital equipment and you can move the stuff, you know, into lower cost regions. So I knew the drill. I said, okay, well, we've got to move our manufacturing also to low cost regions. Um, and so to keep up with this. And so we moved it into, into Thailand, uh, which, you know, Celestic had an extremely competent site there, like really, really world-class site. Um, and by the time, I mean, it, it took us, another it was a huge scale factory also learning the lessons in the past um and probably by the time that factory was uh up and running the prices had dropped uh you know to i'm going to say 50 cents and 40 cents and by the time it fully got going you know they're probably getting 40 30 cents so then the next thing that we did is said okay well here's the next thing we've got to do we've got to um, get more of a vertically integrated supply chain and we're going to have to uh, have some manufacturer maybe a bit more of the uh, silicon or, or create the wafers and that way we'll get some cost advantage and we've got to set that up in a low-cost region as well uh, and so we did that in Malaysia so we had basically a fully integrated uh, between manufacturing in Thailand at high volume and a uh, solar cell manufacturing site in Malaysia, all of which could get around the tariffs, by the way, coming from from China uh, and, you know, provide access to the U.S. marketplace and advantage uh, because China was already being accused of dumping at that time. By the time we got all that done, the price was down to 30 cents. Um, and the the Chinese were able to be ahead of that curve to the point where they could afford to manufacture their product, pay the duties, and be roughly the same sort of uh, expense as we could do with that fully vertic vertically integrated low-cost uh, supply chain. Um, and so that's when I knew that a different game was afoot. And this wasn't just about um, China and the tr traditional economies of scale, the low-cost labor, manufacturing efficiency and all that that they this was government policy because there were they were subsidizing the capital equipment manufacturers therefore they got lower cost uh equipment and this is what blew the germans out of the water is that they were you know knocking off their equipment and doing it at a fraction of the price they had they had subsidized the large-scale silicon uh, uh polysilicon fabs oftentimes in the interior of china with very cheap electricity not clean electricity too. Um, and then they had also created a massive market for these companies by having all sorts of feed-in tariffs that you had to have domestic content for. So they had this complete closed loop from silicon wafer to end up demand. And, you know, little old Celestica had tried to do that itself, right? We tried to do our own closed loop, but we couldn't compete against China. And um, so even with the best learning that I had had, from my decades of doing this electronics and knowing where it was going, that la that caught me off guard. That shift from a buck to uh, to you know fifty cents during this whole process happened over the course of maybe three or four years, uh, and it was all because China decided this was strategically important to them. So the, one of the lessons uh, I've done a lot of reporting on, in, on, on clean energy industrial policy, um, particularly in uh, North America and Europe. And 
one of the things that one of my takeaways from that and from your story is that governments decide that they're going to uh, spend money now uh, to subsidize the development and establishment of the industry. And they, it, it, and the ones that do it really well do it comprehensively. They, they subsidize both the, the adoption and the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the supply of the new technology. And those move in lockstep and they yep. scale them up in lockstep. And, and mm -hmm. that seems to be part of the China's successful strategy here is the, I mean, you know, they, they installed 50% of, of the solar capacity uh, last year and they keep, yeah. and they plan to keep doing that. And uh, so is that, that, is that the difference between the, the success in China and the lack of success with Celestica and with other companies in other, in other regions? Yeah, I mean, you, you can see you can see in my story, right, like all the elements of what you're talking about, like Germany tried this and then Ontario tried this and, you know, Celestica tried to go transnational and place it together herself. And so this has been the story of the West, right, where it's been a country tries something um, or a company tries something. And meanwhile, in China, you have a nation trying something. Uh, and it's a pretty darn big nation, right? And so they just out, basically outgun um, even very large industries and very large countries, and they do it in an integrated way. Um, but the lessons are obvious. I mean, uh, I mean, Germany was successful for a period of time. Ontario was successful for a period of time. You know that you've got to link uh, the industrial policy of the manufacturing of something with the demand for that thing to get it going. And this is an old lesson, right? This is what the Japanese and Germans did after um, you know World War II when they're trying to build up their their industry. They would have you know internal demand and protected markets, and then eventually their their companies get up at at competitive scale and competitive pricing and competitive quality, and then they start exporting, and then you know they create wealth from that way. So this is not as if China invented this; they just did it at such massive scale. With the only overlay is that they also knew that this was also about energy security for them, right? So there's an additional imperative that, you know, I'd say Japanese and Germany didn't have after the war is that the very industry that they were creating was also energy security for them because they knew that they didn't have a lot of oil and gas to meet their needs. So they were going to um, create a renewable energy system that would help them to be more energy self-sufficient. If I can, this is a mistake that the oil and gas industry is making right now. Uh, they see the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia as creating energy security around hydrocarbons, when in fact, in most places, like and Europe is the is the classic example of that. But I think this also applies to China. The, the lesson for the customers or the importers is that they can that that wind and solar. And I suppose hydro and geothermal and nuclear all get create energy domestically, and and so if you can build out your renewable uh, fast enough, uh, you can in fact transition off those off your hydrocarbons uh, and reduce your uh, energy insecurity that way. Yeah, I mean it's so. I mean, how many ways do these guys need to be wrong, right? And and. The reason is, I, I feel, and I, I was joking, we call it Upton Sinclair disease, right? Which is, you know, it's difficult to convince a man of 
to understand something. Their salary depends on them not understanding it. And these guys have had, you know, a century or so of, you know, being sure of themselves, right? And making lots of money for them and having governments at their beck and call and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's going to be impossible for them to fully imagine and appropriately respond to a threat that is so foreign to them. It's just not going to happen. So right. they're just so, going to be wrong. So, so what happened to Celestica? Yeah. So what happened with Celestica is that we eventually, <laughs> I mean, had to get out of that business, you know, and had to close up the sites. And the only thing that ended up being left was uh, competing on the power electronics side. Um, you know, that, that was about it, but couldn't compete anymore on the solar panel side. Um, and that was it. And so then I left Celestica um, and I, I think they lost some when I left. I think they lost a bit of the religion associated with it too. But, and that's, you know, was the next part of my journey, which was where I went into the small company, small Canadian tech companies. And I invested in a bunch of them. And one of them was Morgan Solar. And they asked me to run it based on my experience of doing all these solar uh, ramp ups. And I think the first thing that I did when I came in there was to say, wow, I mean, I think at that point, solar was selling at 50 cents and, and um, you know, Morgan had a, a plan to get their, their unique technology, better mousetrap technology down to 30 cents. And I kind of looked at it and said, yeah, maybe you'll get to 30 cents and maybe you won't. But I think the cost curves from, um, you know, China are going to get there, you know, as well and faster with less risk. But even I was surprised because then they dropped, and this was probably 2016, 2017, they dropped from the 50 cents to 30 cents within six months or so like that. It was like unbelievable. That was, as I said to you, when you knew that it was more than just the traditional, you know, cost efficiencies and, and that sort of thing. And what are we looking at now? I, I, know, I know I interviewed a, a Wood Mac, uh, Stephen Nell from Wood Mac, uh, Wood McKenzie, uh, VP of Renewables and Power, and he, he pegs China's costs at 15 cents a watt but i thought that it was on your twitter feed yeah that I saw that it was actually there 12 cents a watt yeah i mean of course this is <laughs> this is always difficult to to um and and as anyone who's been in the solar industry i mean you can hear what the published price is and you can go and talk to them at the factory and you can you know whatever there's it's it's the wild west there are so many manufacturers in china who ruthlessly compete with each other that the, the price always surprises people to the downside. So almost any number that people come up with is going to be wrong based on where the frontier of pricing actually is. Um, and so let's just say it's in the low teens anyway, you know? Um, wow. And so does it matter if it's 12 or 13 cents? This is the point. This is where solar's gotten to where I'm going to say the panel, which is, you know, obviously the, the power generation portion of the thing is a fraction of the cost. Like all the costs now, if you look in, in the U.S. is, you know, your, your permitting cost and, and then your boots to set up something and then the steel structure and concrete and construction costs and you know, all that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, it's not the panel anymore. That is not the, the actual technology conversion hardware is not the driving uh, factoring anymore. So whether it's 10 cents, 9 cents, 11 cents, 12 cents, it's irrelevant, frankly, to to the uh, march of solar. It's just gotten so inexpensive uh, now that I don't think the extra cent is is changing anything. 
Are we um, going to see innovation on the those other parts of the? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and I can tell you, a lot of it needs to be business model and regulatory innovation, which of course is being held up by all the incumbents about you know trying to do everything possible, including passing laws to try and prevent things and make things more complex. And even with that, it's marching on. Um, simply because it just makes sense. So yeah, you're you're absolutely are seeing those sort of things, and that's certainly where I shifted Morgan Solar to was to you know twofold. One one is because we believe that the market is shifting away from hey just the pure panels. Morgan Solar doesn't make panels anymore like we used to. What we do is we use all our sensors and analytics suite that we used to do to to make sure that. Our panels were working as we expected them to. And now we've we've offered that, we have created an offering that goes into solar fields around the world to allow people to better manage the boots they put on the ground and when they put them on the ground, their maintenance schedules, where they might have problems. Because uh, you know, solar has become so inexpensive in the power purchase agreements and it's so competitive that now it's a mature industry. It's like a bond coupon. You you put a bunch of capital up front and then you're just scraping off a coupon based on how much power you're going to generate times your PPA price. And PPAs have been compressed and carrying costs have gone up with interest rates, right? So the things that maybe people didn't have to care about back in the days of fat, you know, feed and tariffs and things like that, they do have to care about, about running the business when you clean your panels, your maintenance of your inverters, your maintenance of your site, cutting your grass. And we provide information that tells them how to do that better because now that's more valuable than just a cheaper panel. I've got, um, I've got a, 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 and I'll say this, a full disclosure, because um, I interview a cure uh, battery intelligence uh, all the time there. Dr. Uh, Kai Phillip carries is, uh, is a battery expert, and but they're also a client. We do some interviews for them for marketing uh, interviews. Um, but my point here is that they use a battery monitoring system. It's a, a data, big data analytics system using using AI to to monitor uh, battery health, so that yes. when there's when a, a cell begins to to fail, they pick it up early and can prevent thermal runaway. That those yeah. kinds of benefits. And it's and, yeah. and so. Am I correct in saying that Morgan Solar? does something similar on the uh, with on the the solar generation side yeah because um just like the battery is the active component in the whole battery system but there's a whole bunch of ancillary things around it right it's the same thing in the solar uh even though it costs so little um it is the thing that's driving the power and therefore by it's our view that um there's two approaches when you kind of use ai and big data you know, as people talk about, is that you can either look at a lot of parameters uh, and then try to infer within those parameters, you know, you have a broad data set that's big and you infer and use the data to do the crunching to figure out the patterns, or you have a very deep data set of rich information from which you extrapolate. And so our approach is we have a very, very deep data set of the actual performance of the active envelope in a solar field, which is the panel and how it's performing on a longitudinal basis, i.e., you know, not 24 hours a day, but as soon as the sun comes up and the sun goes down, we can tell you all about that. But then you infer performance of when you don't see the output, say, coming from the inverter, but you're seeing the input coming from the panel, you say, ah, something's in between here. Now I can infer that something's happening. So, so yeah, it's, it's probably similar uh, that, you know, you have the cell and then you have everything else, you know, the power output from the battery. 
we have the panel and then the power output from the, the field and we're mining deep data on the panel performance to then make extrapolations about where the problem might be if it's not on the panel. Is this where uh, solar has, uh, has landed, where it's now about optimization, 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 uh, and, and that's what's going to drive further declines in the cost of solar? Yeah, I mean, uh, so let's let's uh, put it this way. I mean, I've always said that solar is the only technology that can work on the numerator and denominator of the dollars per watt. So I think you're going to see dollars or cents in this case, since it's so small, cents keep coming down, right? Because it's they're gonna it's solar is just an just add money technology. So you want another 500 megawatts of production, okay, blah blah blah. And people know how to build factories that are going to continue to take the sense out of the, the numerator on that. And on the bottom side, you, you know, you can see how they continue to have new materials and better efficiency and all that to raise up the number of watts. So you're going to have the cost to build a watt coming down and the number of watts that it builds going up. And that's why you see the curves on Twitter now that everyone's freaking out about and say, oh my God, but this is not new. It's just going to, that's going to keep happening. I'm telling, I'm just guess I'm just going to say that's not where the leverage is when you look at how much it costs now to install solar. It's not in that anymore. And so it really does come down to um, more prosaic things about how quickly you can assemble these things, how efficiently are they going to run, how uh, efficiently do, do you convert the electricity without losses from what comes off the panel and through the inverter into the the transmission lines and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's where the the action is is shifting. What are the to, so. what are the lessons here um, going forward? It you know the the forecast is for ex, ex, uh, solar installation to just I mean it's it's exploding uh, yeah. and uh, globally we know China has got uh, plenty of spare capacity in its solar panel manufacturing uh, in the sector. Uh, so it could ramp up, uh, presumably, it could it could ramp up the supply of of panels. Um, uh, so where are we going? Uh, where, what's your take on, uh, you know, what the role that Morgan Solar is going to play, the role that China is going to play, the role of what's going to happen in the U.S. thanks to the IR, the Inflation Reduction Act, and trying to establish, uh, you know, solar panel manufacturing there. Uh, project into the next two to five years for us what you think is going to happen uh, i mean i mean my uh, i i i feel that projections are always wrong like forecasters are usually terrible right particularly when you're dealing with exponential growth right like people don't think exponentially they think linearly so that's why everyone gets this wrong i think amongst other things so even someone like me who thinks, oh, I think I understand this stuff. You, I showed you how I've been wrong on this all the time. So my bet is always, <laughs> you know, always take the over on the quantity of solar installed and always take the under on the cost of that solar. And of course, those work in lockstep. So, you know, I agree with the, you know, the way to look at this is, uh, you know, as I said, solar is just an ad, ad money technology, both for the installation and the manufacturing of it. We know how to do this, right? So it's just how much of this is being brought to bear because the business case is there and the regulatory uh, environment allows them to you know, get the sites and set them up and connect them and all that sort of stuff. So the rate limiting, the only wild card is not that solar is going to be able to be ma manufactured in mass quantities. Um, I've heard there's more than a terawatt of capacity right now, for example, and we install, we're going to install 400 and 
20 or something like that gigawatts this year. So there's like double the capacity apparently that exists already to manufacture solar panels. You can believe that or not or whatever. But the point is, that's not going to be the supply is not going to be the issue. The cost isn't really going to be the issue of it either. Um, I think the need for it isn't going to be an issue either. I just think it's going to be, do governments get out of the way? Or do they listen to the fossil fuel industry and all the other, yeah, but bros who kind of say we can't do this. And, you know, that's what I feel is going to be the rate limiting step of, of solar. And the only reason why I don't say it's going to be so whatever is, is that, is that, that's the only thing that's stopping. And it's not going to stop China because China, China isn't going to put those regulatory hurdles in it because they know they're doing it for strategic reasons. And I think Europe's waking up to that fact and is trying to get out of its way as well. And I think America is waking up to that fact too. And I think you're going to see them, both of those places, surprised to the upside all the time. Um, so that's the future of, of utility solar. But to me, to me, the highest and best use technology, this is the other gear that people don't understand, is that Every, techno every new technology is first used as a drop-in replacement into the existing system uh, because that's the imagination of people. So right now we're running power through, you know, hey, this is another thing. It goes through utility. So that's where we do it. And that's how we cite these things. And that's how we you know, have regulations for it and all that. But solar, of course, is ubiquitous. And so it's the first technology that we have that is ubiquitous in, in terms of its ability to generate anywhere in the world. And yeah, everyone knows that it doesn't shine at night and all that BS that you hear from people. But, you know, you can model that out surprisingly. And then at the flip side is it, it also can be done at a source of consumption. That's its magic, is that the universal um, generation and universal uh, coincidence to the source of consumption. That's the future of solar. And I think you're going to start seeing people work around the utility system and start putting in these virtual power plants, which are basically, you know, smaller scale self-contained grids almost that uh, interact with the main grid and manage themselves more with, you know, energy conservation devices and storage and, you know, solar and wind and all that sort of thing and linked into the grid. So you minimize the amount of transmission. And equally this importantly, I think you're going to see more, more uh, solar integrated into where people live and work, which is, uh, you know, into the buildings as well. Let me interject here and say that uh, next week, uh, well, I, yesterday I did an interview with uh, Jennifer Downing, who works for the Department of U.S. Department of Energy. And she's, she gave a very good description of the U.S. Uh, the department's uh, promotion of virtual power plants. They, right. they see that. And Jigger Shaw who runs the is her boss at the, the loans program is an absolute evangelist for for virtual power plants and so i i think you're you're absolutely correct and it another little bit of an insight a couple of years ago the alberta electricity system operator aso uh, did a report on a, a couple of years of consultations that, that they did and in and alberta is very interesting it has more industry than you can shake a stick at 86 percent of the electricity consumed in alberta is for industry and only 14% for, for residential. And the, the thing that scared the, the system operator and other, and other customers is that solar is dropping, uh, so it's become so cheap that these big industries are going to self-generate. And, and then they'll yeah. opt out of the grid and then everybody else will have to pay more to keep the grid going. Because these guys have, have, you know, these big companies have, have opted out. And I think that's where you're going with this, with your observation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the thing why, why I say today uh, regulatory is the gate 
Um, but you can't hold this back. Like this is the thing that's ridiculous. And I, I mean, could you hold the internet back? Could you hold uh, the, you know, computing back? And you, can you hold AI back and all these sort of things? Once the, the genie's out of the bottle, you don't stop it. And, and there's not the same, just like semiconductors and all that, is just these forces that reduce the cost and increase the availability of it are kind of irresistible because people just want to use them. And so you, you, there's history is strewn with examples of, of governments trying to stand in the way of that train. And uh, we're doing that now. And, and the crazy thing about it is, you know, when there was computers or, or even going from UAVs to, you know, uh, from planes and, you know, that sort of thing, um, there has never been, in my opinion, an industry as thoroughly entrenched, and that's why I say the fossil fuel government industrial complex. I don't know how governments, and Alberta is a classic case, identifies with an industry so strongly. So you have this regulatory control uh, aided and abetted and supported by an industry who wants to have that control. And then on top of that, you have utilities, which are, of course, the same sort of thing, the classic incumbents uh, who are centralized and state-owned and all that. So they have all these levers that these other industries didn't have to try and hold back the wave. So they're delaying it. But eventually, it blows through it. And catastrophically, my opinion, if you're not prepared for it, and that's why you had things that the you know, whole industries have been destroyed. And Ontario is, is full of this about shuttered factories all over the place when you couldn't keep up with certain things. And, and so I feel, I feel that you are going, you are having that same thing. So how does that, how does it break the dike on these things? Exactly. As you said, um, people now have the means for the first time in history to actually, well, first time in a long time, since we moved away from burning your own, logs and stuff like that, right? To, to have meaningful amounts of power that they can generate in an industrial scale or at a household level. It's distributed power that you can scale up. And so either you're a householder, you can get around it, you can join a community as a VPP and you could join it, or you could be an industry and self-generate and all that. And, and that is open to people now. And the econ economics work for them because you know the, the generation cost is so low. So what's happened is utilities are now defending themselves with high transmission costs. Like you look on your bill and the cost for transmission and distribution is so high. And so it's just too easy. They're making it too easy to have a business case that says, yeah, I should self-generate whether I'm a homeowner, homeowner or whatever. And that's why you're seeing government regulations in many parts of states and Australia where this has happened, trying to fight that now. We can't have this. And they put it under the guise that you'll have too unreliable a bid, but that's BS. They just don't want to, you know, want to protect their incumbency. So yes, that's how it's going to break the, the dike, I think. Let, let me wrap up the interview this way. Uh, I had someone come on a thread yesterday on, on, on Twitter. And uh, Twitter is, is a bit of an insight into you know, how particular provinces or industries think. And so this, this individual came on and he was from Alberta and he said, we Albertans don't like electricity. We like oil and gas and we don't want your electricity. We don't want to be mm -hmm. electrified and we're not going to do it. And my mm -hmm. response to him was, dude, like you think you have a choice? You yeah. think that you, you can somehow erect an erected offense around Alberta and while the while the, the global energy transition is destroying your export markets across, I mean, around the world, and somehow you're going to resist that, 
And but but the reason I bring this up is that is not an uncommon view in Alberta, and it's not an uncommon view in other oil producing and gas producing regions. And then, of course, because it's a prevalent view, then the the influence of the industry on those particular uh, you know, because they control regulation and so on, they can then do what El Alberta is doing, which is basically trying to put up a fence. And it and it's going it's going to fail. The problem is when it does, it'll be so spectacular that the that the provincial economy will be so damaged that maybe it won't recover. Maybe it won't yeah. be able to pivot to something else. Whereas if it moves now, well, it still has has significant revenue and it you know be, and it hasn't been damaged it has been hamstrung by disruption it can do something today but maybe yep. five years from now or 10 years from now it can't do that thing and then you know it becomes it becomes you know newfoundland after the cod fishery collapsed yeah that's 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 the problem so but anyway mike yeah. look, this has been this has been terrific uh, really appreciate this. Uh, you've uh, this is an insight into a part of the clean energy industry that I was not familiar with, and, and a fascinating story. And thank you very much for this. Yeah, thanks, and have a great holiday. As I say, I I watch you to kind of get a gauge of what's happening with uh, Alberta and all that. And uh, I, you and people like Max Fawcett, uh, you're doing God's work, in my opinion, trying to fight back about it. I mean. The rest of us in Canada are only worried that all the liabilities from these stranded assets are going to waterfall onto us. Uh, so that's our interest in it, too. Oh, they, yeah. As uh, regular listeners know, uh, we're deep into that debate yeah. and into the reporting around that that issue. And if you are a Canadian outside of Alberta, uh, I'll, I'll sum it up this way. There's $300 billion of unfunded environmental liabilities. The odds are better than than 50-50, in my opinion, that the energy transition is going to catch Alberta unprepared and Canadians like you are going to have to foot the bill for cleaning up yeah. all of those liabilities because they are so egregious and outrageous. So on that cheery note, Merry Christmas, Mike. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas to you, Markham. We'll talk to you in the new year. Take care. Bye.